going to look this morning at a passage about being transformed, about no longer being conformed to the world from Romans 12, um, and about being transformed into, into what we um, might be as we become more and more like Jesus. So I think, I think it's fair to say that for, for most of us, um, we feel like we want to belong, that we want to, to, to fit in. Um, it, might for, uh, it might, for some of us, be the way that we look, maybe choosing to, to dress the same way as, as other people do. Um, it may be that we choose to communicate using jargon or slang in the same people that, that others do. Um, it may be what we eat, um, jumping on the, the smashed avocado bandwagon, um, which I heard only today the army are now using as their um, breakfast of choice. Um, it might even be whether our desire to, to grow a beard or, or not to grow a beard. And even those times when we think we're being radical or different, in fact, probably what we're doing is just following a different set of rules, another way of dressing or another way of speaking. Um, I think belonging and being part of something bigger than ourselves gives us a real sense of, of warmth. Um, we don't normally want to be the one person who's standing out. Um, we want to conform to those rules, whichever group we're with, and that's what really choose, forces us to do that. And when we come across people that don't conform, um, we tend to label them, don't we, oddballs or mavericks or eccentrics. So what I want to do this morning as we take a short break from looking at spiritual gifts is to think about what it is to conform and as Christians, what and perhaps who should we be conforming to? And in particular, say how those verses of Romans 12, 1 and 2 might just apply to us. So if you have got a Bible, if you want to turn to Romans 12, we'll do that. But otherwise, I'm going to put the passage up on the screen as well. So uh, it's up there if you don't want to do that. So a really well-known verse. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So what I'd like us to do this morning is just to think of three things. To think firstly, what are some of those patterns of this world that we're no longer to conform to? And then is conforming the same as mixing? How as a church should we mix with the world that has different views and different values to us? And then finally, what is the alternative? What is it to be transformed? What is it to start to be like Christ? So let's start with that first one. What are those patterns of the world? This letter to the Romans was written over 2,000 years ago. And of course it applied to them just as much as it applies to us today. So I don't think the, the patterns have got to be more than just fads. They've got to be more than things that we just do. So I don't think this writer is talking about us using social media or taking up technology or riding in aeroplanes. I don't think it's that at all. I think the patterns that he's talking about run far, far deeper. Um, although they probably play out differently in each generation, um, I think they're about character, they're about attitude, they're about the same things that they've been about for the last 2,000 years. So let's be plain right from the outset. The world that we live in, I think perhaps more than any before, puts us under real pressure to conform to its standards. We're born into a world system that now is a powerful force and that seeks to shape our thoughts right from our birth. 
Those world ideas just swirl around us and they confront us in all sorts of ways as the world tries to push and pull and entice us to become the same as it, to conform to its standards. (laughs) It encourages us to seek the plaudits and recognition of men and women rather than of God. It pulls us towards its value system of wealth, power, prestige and popularity. And we need to be aware of this assault because it's there all the time. Its ever-present nature and the strength of those messages mean that whether we like it or not, we probably have absorbed some of those messages. So I think not conforming to the pattern of the world is more than simply just avoiding a set of maybe questionable activities. It's about guarding our character. It's about changing our very heart attitude. Wealth and power equals success screams at us from all directions. The normalisation of violence, abuse and the breakdown of relationships are the central storylines of many of the dramas that fill our TV schedules. The commoditization of sex spills out from our marketing billboards and online advertising. The message is plain. If this life is all there is, then who needs God? The only rules in life are to maximise pleasure and to minimise pain. And what is it that rests at the root of many of these patterns? Our attitude, maybe, towards money, sex and power. In his book of the same name, Richard Foster says this, that no issue touches us more profoundly or more universally. No themes are more inseparably intertwined. No topics cause more controversy. No three things have been more sought after or are more in need of a Christian response. So let's just take a couple of minutes to look at each one of these now. Money sits right at the heart of our Western value system. How much are they worth? How much would that house cost? What do you think she earns? That looks like a really expensive car. Within our Western value system, money and possessions are often used as a way of keeping score, seeing where I rank amongst all my peers. And we know that Jesus speaks a lot about money. In fact, the Bible speaks about money and possessions more than any other topic, and that includes prayer and faith combined. And when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that we cannot serve both God and money, he recognises both the power and the allure that money has. He knows full well that pull of money, the way it can shape and dominate a person's thinking, leading them to live in a way that compromises the truth, falling below what is best for them. 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now all of us here have lived through a period where getting money appeared relatively easy, whether as an individual or whether as a government. At a personal level, multiple credit cards and store cards, short and long-term loans, high percentage loan-to-value mortgages have all fuelled that habit now and keep up with the Joneses type of culture. In order to give the people what they want, governments around the world have borrowed to unsustainable levels. Um, The UK's debt at the end of 2018, according to the Office of National Statistics, is £1,837.5 billion. Um, Now, whatever your political persuasion, that's a lot of debt. So the ability to get easy money appeared everywhere, helping us to buy the stuff the advertisers said would make us happy, helping us accumulate possessions that we either didn't need and in some cases we don't even use. 
Ecclesiastes 5.10 reminds us that whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Um, When asked famously how much was enough, John D. Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. In the end, those possessions are really unlikely to make us happy. And paying back all that debt looks far harder and much more miserable than getting it all in the first place was. So maybe one of the roots of the patterns of this world should be our attitude towards money, valuing and measuring ourselves and others by what we own. From the message version of the Bible, Jesus reminds us in Luke 12, 15, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. The second one maybe is sex, and sex sells. Um, For many years, there have been the mantra of entertainment, film and advertising industries, and the allure of sex is all around us. Whether in the imagery of scantily dressed men and women in the Love Island series or its inclusion into mainstream books and films. When it was first published, the book The Fifty Shades of Grey, the so-called mummy porn, topped the best-selling book list for weeks on end until finally being taken off the top spot by the Hairy Bikers (laughs) diet book. Never did I think I'd be so grateful for a pair of large, hairy Georges. (laughs) There's concern, isn't there, about the type of inappropriate clothing aimed at sexualising young girls in particular. The increasing explicitness of pop lyrics and videos. The easy availability of pornographic images on the internet and the trend for sending explicit images via social media. You really don't have to go very far to see sexual imagery or sexual exploitation. The Me Too movement was born out of sexual exploitation and sexual abuse, largely carried out by powerful and influential men. We hear about those celebrity victims, but we must recognise that such exploitation and abuse is not merely confined to Hollywood, but is a reality for many, and mainly women, in all walks of life. So maybe a second route of defining those patterns of the world is the distortion of sex from what it was that God intended. The bar for Christians is set really high in this area. Ephesians 5.3 says that among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And 1 Corinthians 6.18 urges us to flee from sexual immorality. The third of those three was power and perhaps actually it's the misuse of power that is the most sinister of all. It shows itself, I think, in all sorts of different ways and has different consequences. The strong exploiting and manipulating the weak. The erosion of trust and the consequent breakdown of relationships and the destruction of dialogue and integrity. Misused power often seeks total control. Um, I was listening to to Chris Patton, who, if you remember, was the ex-governor of Hong Kong recently. Um, And he said that President Putin of Russia was the most evil man that he had ever met. And that's quite some statement, given the serious competition that seems to be going around at the moment. So what does destructive, misused power look like? Let's think of King Saul. At the time when he was king, he was the man supposedly with all the power. Yet the people didn't love Saul. They loved David. 
And that perceived loss of power and authority drove Saul to want to murder him. Proverbs 29.2 says that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, I don't think the misuse of power is not just confined to high office. It can also play out in our everyday relationships. Consider Jesus' disciples who, right up to his death, remained concerned over which of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We don't know what the impact of those discussions would have had on that, glo- on that close-knit group of, of men. But as they argued, I would imagine that, that trust would have been eroded, that suspicions between them would have been raised, that motives would have been questioned, and that all those relationships would have been weakened. And I think when we link power with pride, it can become even more dangerous. I think a leader, whether in politics or industry or the church or any other field who believe their own hype, is a very dangerous man or woman to have at the helm. These people believe they have nothing left to learn. They're never wrong, and they're actually untouchable. So our attitude towards power is perhaps the third route leading to some of those patterns of this world that we're no longer going to conform to. I'm sure there are others, um, but I think money, sex and power are probably enough for us to be going on with at the moment. So our second question... Is conforming, or is mixing with the world, the same as conforming? For years, centuries, the church has struggled with this, how much to be involved with the world outside. What extent to mix with the people? What does it actually mean when we do that? So at one end of the spectrum, we've got churches that feel they should really have as little as possible to do with society, for fear that they're going to be tainted, for fear that something's going to rub off and they're going to not be as good an example as they should be. So let's think about Jonah, just as an example of that. Um, He was sent by God to Nineveh to tell the people that they needed to repent or face obliteration. So Jonah saw his sole responsibility as telling the people how evil they were and pronouncing judgment on them. There was no mixing, there was no compassion, there was no desire to understand or reach the people just to condemn them and in the end hopefully to see God destroy the city. Um, And as we all know, eventually Jonah became furious with God because God did show his love, he did show his mercy, and he did show his compassion towards those people of Nineveh. And I think for us it's easy, isn't it, to stand on the sidelines and just condemn and pass judgment on all that is going wrong. It requires a very loud voice and probably very little thought. But of course it doesn't help anything. It doesn't help anybody. Right at the other end of the spectrum are those churches that have really seem to have thrown their lot in with the world, um, where the distinction between the world and the church seems to all but disappeared. Let's think a little bit about the story of Esther as an, as an illustration of how this might work. Um, Esther is the story of a beautiful young Jewish girl that the Persian king Xerxes chose to be part of his harem and eventually chose to be his wife. Her life is one of luxury, and she's almost forgotten that she's a Jew perhaps even choosing to keep that quiet. In effect, she's absorbed into the world around her. She becomes one with that world. As the story develops, Esther is the only hope for the people of God. Their fate depends on her, but she hesitates and wavers, not wanting to reveal her true identity. She doesn't want to rock the boat. She's almost embarrassed to be known as a follower of the God of Israel. Now, eventually, Esther does come through, but only at the end of the story and after her own life and that of her family is threatened. 
So being like the world, assimilation, has that advantage of avoiding confrontation, but it still remains unhealthy. It renders both churches and Christians impotent. Somewhere towards the middle of the spectrum are those churches that understand the call to be different, to not conform to the patterns of this world, but still see value in interacting and influencing the world around them. The churches understand that the world's prevailing culture can be changed. They see themselves as a community here on earth, as a model of what life could actually be like. The church is set apart from its non-Christian culture and yet it engages and serves the world in which it lives. The church sees its responsibility is to be Christ to the world. Our example here is Daniel. So a little bit like Esther, Daniel was expected to, be, to behave like all the people around him. And given the success that we read about in his life, he probably did that in a whole number of ways. But when it really mattered when his relationship with God was put to the test, then Daniel stood up. He could no longer go along with the patterns of this world. He made a stand. He was integrated into and was part of that world culture around him, but he never forgot that he belonged first and foremost to God. Now, Ian spoke last week about faith, didn't he? The spiritual gift of faith. And I think it takes huge faith to believe that God can transform our culture around us. But let's be under no illusion, transformation will not come through legislation or the influence of power. It will come through the faithfulness and prayers of God's people. The task of the church, as I see it, is not to sit on the sidelines, it's not to condemn and to throw stones, but neither is it to blend in in such a way that we no longer make a voice and make a stand. The task of the world, I think, is to pray, to love and to live in such a way that we become Christ to this world. So what is our alternative? Romans 12.2 speaks of a transformation, of a renewing of our minds, filling them with the thoughts and the values and the ideals of Jesus. It is to his character that as Christians we seek to conform. Uh, 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that we are aliens and strangers in this world. Other versions use the word pilgrims or foreigners or exiles or sojourners. And in the message version, it says this, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cosy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they will be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. So if we're aliens and strangers, then Philippians 3.2 tells us that we're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting for the arrival of the Saviour, the Master Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. Our life here is but a fleeting passage of time when we measure it against eternity. And our desire should be to conform to the patterns of the eternal kingdom, the real long-term home of Christians, rather than the patterns of this world. So where do we start? I suggest that we start with identity and worth. 
rather than using the world's measures of wealth and power, of prestige and popularity as markers, let's use God's measures. Conforming to his image starts with understanding that our identity, my identity, is defined by the truth of the word of God. So we are children of God, John 1.12 tells us. Friends of Jesus, John 15.15. Justified and redeemed, Romans 3.24. Accepted by Christ, Romans 15.17. Children and heirs, Galatians 4.17. Redeemed and forgiven, Ephesians 1.17. Brought near to God by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. That's our identity. I could have picked so many more but it's a very different way of identifying ourselves to the way that the the world would want us to do it. Next, let's change our time horizons. Um, If we live just for the here and now, then we're minded to operate under the world's value system. If this is all there is, then why not exploit it? However, if we're able to lift our eyes to the eternal and then the pull of the world just begins to fade... We start to value those things that will last forever, storing up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth, looking for those things that will last rather than will simply pass away. So thirdly, let's not ignore the spiritual disciplines or our dependence on God. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, we read this, "'Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling.'" For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. So on the human side of that voice, we are responsible for working out our own salvation. But on the divine side, it's God who gives us the desire and the empowerment to accomplish his purposes. Both the human and the divine work together. I don't think we've got it in us to conform to the character of Christ in our own strength. We can only do that with the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. But that's not to say that we don't have our part to play. Christian authors over the centuries have lined up to say that the classical disciplines of the Christian faith are not optional, but are essential practices for those of us who want to become like Jesus. Spiritual disciplines are activities, they are things that we can do. And they include reading and meditating on the Word of God, prayer, scripture memory, worship, fasting... There's a whole long list there. They're practices that are taught or modelled in the Bible and they're designed for us to know and experience God more and to grow more like Jesus. But let's remember, those disciplines are not a means... Sorry, they're a means and not an end. We're not godly because we practice the disciplines, but they are a means to us, a means to godliness. And their purpose is found in 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. It says this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So as we seek to conform more to his image, we can add to this list the following, loving ourselves correctly and others compassionately, Practicing being overdoing, um, we are human beings and spending more time abiding in God. Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, living a lifestyle of discipleship and evangelism, and practicing encouragement, accountability, 
and worship. So Paul urges us, Paul urges us to no longer conform to the patterns of this world. Patterns born partly out of the world's attitude to money, sex and power. But rather to be transformed, renewing our minds as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. As we understand our true identity, as we lift our eyes to heaven, conforming to his likeness. Shall we pray? Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character. Lord, we thank you that that character does not change. And we thank you that it is defined by a love for each one of us. And Father, we would ask that we would look to be more like you. Father, we would ask that we would lift our eyes to heaven, that we would see the eternal, that we would see your face and seek to be like you. Father, we would ask that you would protect our hearts, that you would guide, guard our character, that we may no longer conform to the patterns of this world. Father, and to the extent that we've absorbed those world messages, Lord, may we try to replace them with you. May we try to replace them with those high ideals that you have for our life. In those areas, Father, where you want us to change, may we seek to do that in your power. May we ask you to come into each area of our lives and change us so that we may be more and more like you. Father, we would ask that you would work a miracle in each of us, Lord, that you would change us, that you would renew us, and that you would strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.